Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Modern House podcast. My name's Matt Gibbard and I'm co-founder of design-led estate agency The Modern House. In this podcast, each guest picks their three favourite living spaces from anywhere in the world and we use those as the framework for a discussion about the importance of good design within the home. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome the dapper, dashing and very lovely fashion designer, Charlie Casely Hayford, whose brand takes an anarchic and very British approach to sartorialism. Thanks for listening as always, and I hope you enjoy it. Charlie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. To start things off, could you tell the listeners a bit about your brand, Casely Hayford? How, how do you describe the aesthetic and what does it stand for, would you say? Um, I started the company with both my parents, so my father, Joe Casey Hayford, and his wife, Maria. I pretty much started the brand straight out of university when I was 22. And our DNA is kind of entrenched in, I guess, British subculture, very much influenced by the London scene, past and present, but uh, also juxtapose that with um, English tutorialism, so... We are very much into tailoring, but with a modern perspective. Sounds good. So your father dressed the clash, I think, didn't he, back in the day? He he did indeed, yes. <laughs> it's very cool. A bit before my time. So so he so he was quite anarchic, was he, your dad? Uh yeah, he he didn't really conform to any stereotype or fit into any more. And I think people struggled a little bit with that. He was anarchic but incredibly traditional at the same okay. time. Um, and that, that's kind of, I guess, uh, indicative of the handwriting of our brand. Yeah. To, to start your own brand in your early 20s like you did, I mean, how did you do that? Most people are drinking shots of Sambuca and larking around. <laughs> what, what, how do you I do was, that? I was, still, I was still doing that too. <laughs> okay. Um, just trying to juggle both at the same time. Okay. You know, my parents have worked together since they, they met when they were 21 at St. Martin's. And have worked together ever since. So my sister and I pretty much grew up in a studio environment. I, I remember as a, a kid growing up hearing my parents talking about fabrics at three in the morning in, in, in their bedroom. <laughs> so there was there was no real difference between <laughs> work at home, I guess. So it uh, just became part of my world, I guess, without me even realising so as a child, were you pretty immersed in it? Were you in amongst the work as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily understand what was going on. And, you know, yeah. I was going to my parents' shows from a very young age. Um, but I, I think it's inevitable that that seeps through you over the, the years. And, you know, I remember, and this was in my later teens, but we went on a, a family holiday to Paris and then we ended up going to Paris Fashion Week and going to a Raph Simmons show. Wow. That's not a, a normal family holiday. But it's pretty amazing. Just... It's very formative, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Did you always know that you were going to go into fashion then or how does that come about? Uh, no, I, I was very much destined for the art world. I mean, I studied history of art um, at the Courthold and art was my world and still is my world. I was very influenced by the first few internships that I did in my teens. I did an internship at the White Cube. And it was whilst there was a, an unsung Kiefer. Um, this was when the White Cube was in Hoxton Square. Yep. Uh, and they did a Kiefer exhibition in, in Hoxton Square. And That's mind-blowing, yeah. Yeah, blew, literally blew my mind. Uh, and then I think it was actually uh, when I was at St. Martin's and 
it wasn't so much in the classroom because they really threw you in the deep end there. It was um, outside of the classroom that I became fascinated with ideas of identity because I, I think everyone was trying to find out who they were, what they're about, as you are when you're, you know, when you're at university. And I was interested in the power of clothing, I guess, as a kind of manifestation of your, your inner thoughts and how you can change people's perceptions by, by what you wear. Yeah. And that's really where it started, yeah. And actually, it's a similar journey for my dad. We are very similar in a, in a number of ways. But I think having grown up 30 years apart, our brand is about the journey we have both taken and how context affects us viewing the same subject matter. Yeah. So the brand's obviously very much a reflection of you and your father, um, so your father passed away last year, didn't he? Um, yes, he did, yeah. I mean, I've, I've got some insight into this because I lost my dad as well last year. So I, I know a little bit oh, about sorry to hear that. what you must have been feeling yeah. and going through. But I mean, your lives are so intertwined. From a business perspective, what, what kind of effect has that had on you? What's your role now and how's it changed? Um, well, I, I think the struggle has been I haven't really known anything else in my adult life. Yeah. And we were very much a tripod, my dad, my mum and, and myself when we started. And a tripod doesn't stand up if one of the legs is uh, is missing. And that that's kind of, I think, what I've been trying to get to terms with over over the last year uh, is, is what that looks like. And we kind of just had to carry on because we were running a business. So you can't, yeah. you know, go, go on a hiatus uh and I think also a big part of it for me was honouring my dad's legacy and that, that feels it's quite a lot of pressure. But I think only through his death, which is actually very sad, I, did I really truly understand the impression that he had made through his work and in his personal life and the messages that we received after and are still receiving, you know, gave me a great deal of insight into that. That's that's wonderful, isn't it? What what stage are you at now? You've not long opened a shop in central London, is that right? Yes, yes. So we opened uh, our first store on Chilton Street in Marlebone a few months before he passed away. So he, you know, he did get to see it, and I think it made made him extremely happy to have a physical retail space. And the store is a, a collaboration between the newest member of our family, which is my wife. Your wife, of course, Sophie Ashby, who's an interior designer. Yes. So we tasked Sophie with turning this traditional retail space into, I guess, a modern apartment. And whilst I'm very much uh, trusting of my wife, my parents are like the <laughs> highest level of aesthetes uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck of to all her. time. And she was absolutely bricking it. So it was quite an interesting exchange. <laughs> but they were very happy with the results. That's really, really interesting you say that because... When I was reading about the project, being myself married to a, a bit of an esthete and a fashionista and a, yeah. and a designer, I was trying to think about the family dynamic when yeah. my wife tries to design for the family, which actually has come up as well for us in the past. And it's so, yeah. it's so loaded. I, I feel it for is, Sophie, I think it's really hard. Uh, so, so she's done well to come away unscathed, I would say. Um, but talking about Sophie then, let's move on to your first choice of three living spaces that you've chosen. And the first one is the home that you guys live in, 
in Spitalfields, which is called the Brewer's House. It's really funny because I've been to the house. <laughs> no way. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really, really funny. I, I had a lovely meeting with Richard McCormack, the architect, yeah. not long before he died. And he showed me around his offices <clears throat> next door. And then we went into the house and they were linked together, weren't they, by a door? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And Richard used to live there with his long-term partner, Jocasta Innes. And it's the most beautiful, charming Georgian house. So how did you come to own it and, and tell us about it? Yeah, it really is. Um, it's like a magic, magic house. Um, so we don't actually own it. We're renting it. Oh, OK. And we made the decision to rent because we have a flat in the television centre and we're both at a point where we wanted to grow our businesses. It was a toss up between getting a family home or expanding our businesses and we chose to rent and I'm the type of person that plans for the future and Sophie is very much the type of person that lives in the present and she convinced me that we might as well go for something amazing. <laughs> Yeah, when we quite right. when we stumbled across this, I mean, you, you just can't believe it because it's quite concealed from the main street, so you don't really have an idea of of what you're entering. It's kind of like Narnia, and obviously we immediately fell in love with it. Is it still preserved in the way that that Richard and Jocasta used to live in it? Uh, unfortunately, it isn't. So what does um, it look like now? It's still um, mind blowing, but I think a lot of the original detailing that Jocasta is known for um, is no longer there so the sponging and the stenciling there, there are elements of it around but it's kind of evolved and and you know reading about her it seems that that was the way that she approached the house as well in that it was this continual project that um, she kept working at and redoing I think she did it redid it three times because it, when when she f- first moved in I think she bought it for six thousand pounds mm-hmm. and she was pretty broke at the time and from what I can understand, she had to climb in through the first floor window to get into the house because there was just so much <laughs> junk everywhere. That's amazing. Um, and then she kind of, I guess, approached living there much like a squatter, started from the top, so did up the roof first so that there weren't any leaks and then just slowly worked her way down. So I guess that story uh, continues in that it's constantly evolving. Yeah. And... Jocasta, of course, was well known because she wrote this book, Paint Magic, in 1981, yeah. which I think must have been while she was living at the house. So she was probably yeah. learning on the job. Indeed. She, she wrote it um, in the study that Sophie works in. So I think it okay. feels pretty special to be in there. That's great. She very much popularized stippling and marbling and stenciling, didn't she? I, I remember my mum dressed in overalls in the 80s, marbling the walls above our staircase. It was a real <laughs> thing, wasn't it, for, for a while? Yeah. I think she sold over a million copies of that book. Hugely influential. Yeah, it was incredibly influential at the time. And I think she went on to write around 10 or 12 books while she was living there. So how does that resonate with you? you, Would you describe yourself as decorative? um, I would say that, and this is probably my parents' influence, that I'm a maximalist. Yeah. And I feel like the space that she created was a minimalist hell because it was just um, no surface was un- untouched essentially and so I can relate to that I think my, my aesthetics are maybe more aligned with Sophie's and so it's been an interesting journey you know we're still in the process of doing it up but just watching Sophie's vision unfold and kind of continue this story I think there's so much memory 
in that house and I meet so many people who have been there. It was just this kind of open house where people would come and sit in the kitchen and, um, and soak it all up. How do you approach a house that you don't own? You know, especially Sophie being an interior designer, how far do you go with it? Um, we were going back and forth on this actually when we first moved in. Sophie was slightly reluctant to give it her all and I took a leaf out of her book and was like, look, you only live once, so let's just go for it. And so mm. she really has been doing that over the last few months. And the exterior of the house is this beautiful terracotta that's kind of reminiscent somewhere in the Mediterranean. From what I can understand, the reason that Jocasta painted the house that colour was because she grew up in um, in China, in Amoy, and it was a similar colour to the walls in the house that she grew up in as a child. But I think when you, when you see the house you're kind of transported to the Mediterranean and Sophie wanted to echo that in the interior okay and so she's kind of brought in these beautiful warm hues that are actually evocative of the artworks that are centered in our living room she's as passionate if not more passionate about art than I am and kind of that's always her her starting point so she bought the artworks first and then worked around that color palette do you guys generally agree on everything or not um, I, <laughs> tough question. Uh, <laughs> I'll I, be in <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say most of the time. Um, I, I think a big part of it as well is that I am learning, so I don't pass judgment because I, quite, I think quite often I don't understand. I might have a gut reaction, but then as as I I live with her world for a little bit longer I start to appreciate it from a different perspective so I've kind of learned to bite my tongue on occasion unless I feel really strongly about something yeah because actually as I I live with it um it just takes on a different form yeah what is it about Georgian architecture do you think I mean Georgian houses have they have this thing don't they what's it like to live in a Georgian house describe it uh it's just uh it firstly the area itself there's just um, so much history there. Mm. And a lot of the YBAs live or have lived very, very close by. Mm. And you really feel the creativity. And I think um, it's just such an inspiring house and area to live in. I think Gilbert and George are one street away. Chris Ophelia was always on the on the, the next. And one of the Chapman brothers. So it's just to have all these various layers and feel like you're a part of that and hopefully adding to it is is quite something so yeah i, c- I can't really complain <laughs> <laughs> i absolutely love the story of how jocasta Innes and richard mccormack met I, yeah. I was reading an interview that he did with spitterfield's life yeah i'm going to quote this because richard said the pub next door was called the romford arms when jocasta first came here and that's where we met I bought part of the brewery next to the pub and another architect, Theo Crosby, had bought the other half. Jocasta's house was in the middle. She was sitting in the pub and I knew she detested architects, yet she pretended she didn't know I was an architect. (laughs) When I asked her what she was reading, she said, a thousand and one ways to do without an architect. (laughs) And we we lived together ever since. (laughs) It sounds mad. It sounds so I know. I know. Uh, she's just such a character. Yeah. And and the door 
is still there that connects. So he obviously bought the adjoining house. Yeah. And then they, they um, made this door on the first floor landing and it's still there next to our, our bedroom. So you could, in theory, pop into the architect's firm and do a bit of CAD drawing. Exactly. Okay, very, that's useful. <laughs> she also wrote The Pauper's Cookbook, didn't she, in 1971? Yes, yeah. It was all about, you know, home cooking with humble ingredients. Exactly. Do, do, do the two of you cook a lot at home? Do you use it for that? It's certainly been a newfound love for me because I'm not a natural cook. Sophie is, and her sister is uh, the head chef at Spring. Oh, wow. So she is a fantastic chef. And Sophie definitely has strong elements of that within her cooking skills as well. So I think the kitchen in the house is, is just such a wonderful You just want to spend time in there. And Why do you want to spend time in it? What's it like? Well, so it's, um, I mean, it feels like you've just walked into the countryside, essentially. And she, as in Jocasta, had designed it so that everything in the kitchen is on, on display. The cupboards and sink area are made from what looks like old school desks it's just it's the antithesis of new and shiny mm. it's lived in and there's so much memory in there and I don't know you just feel like wow I'm now part of this story and for me that is a privilege so I spend as much time in the house as I can so I think that's why I possibly enjoyed lockdown a little bit too much <laughs> <laughs> The way that we use our homes has evolved so much in the last few years, I think. We cook there, we entertain there, and we also retreat and use it as a sanctuary. Uh, we use it as a place to get away from the world as well. What, what does your home mean to you? Even though you know, you're, you're renting it, you don't own it, but you, you've made it yours. What does it represent? You're obviously a very busy guy. Yeah, I think there's, for me, probably a sense of escapism because I'm a workaholic yeah. and it's taken me a little time to come to terms with that and confess it to Sophie, even though she berates it, <laughs> berates me about it, and I deny it. I think over the last year, I have realised that, um, much like my parents, I, I, I work around the clock. And so a home is a complete detachment, I think, from work. And I've really tried to to work my hardest to build that lifestyle because I grew up in an environment where my parents were, there, there wasn't necessarily a barrier between work and home because they spent every waking hour together and were working together. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a romanticism to the Brewer's house. Um, it's a, a wonderful warmth. It's inviting. I feel like when we can invite people over, I just want to have people over the whole time. And I'm quite a, a private person, so I feel like the house has slightly brought that out of me. So, yeah, I guess it signifies uh, maybe a, a different stage in my life and has forced me to view my lifestyle in a slightly different way. And for a house to do that, I think, is, is a wonderful thing. It is, isn't it? Brilliant. Thanks, Charlie. Let's move on to your second choice, which is an 18th century farmhouse converted into a hotel in Puglia in southern Italy. I hadn't come across this before. Tell us about it. What's it called and, 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 and how do you describe it? Um, so it's, it's a Masseria. It's called Masseria Cimino. Um, and it's in Savalatrelli, I think is how you pronounce it. And yeah, it's, so it's an 18th century farmhouse. Uh, it's now been converted into um, a boutique hotel. And it was actually the first holiday that Sophie and I took when we met. And okay. um, it's just 
absolutely wonderful, I think, in its um, simplicity. And I spoke about escapism earlier. I think it's so far removed from my everyday life that it feels like the end game for me. <laughs> and the, 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 the three places that I have chosen today, I think, represent different moments in, in my life and where I want to end up. And I think Chimino or something like it is towards the end um, when I'm not doing very much and maybe painting outside with oils next to my wife. And it's just, I think the romanticism, there's a rustic elegance to it. Um, the architecture kind of talks of space and light. And I think interestingly, shadow as, as well in the, um, the sun plays such a prominent role in the architecture because it creates these amazing shadows uh, on the, in the interiors and the architecture. And even though it's a very light space, obviously, because um, everything is obviously white, the shadows are almost just as important. And I, I love the contrast between the two. That's lovely. I mean, the, the aesthetic looks very simple. It's whitewashed walls and white fabrics and grey painted furniture. And how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think it's the probably tranquility. Um, I find London life very intense, as does everyone. And as I said, I leave quite a maximalist life in terms of my personal aesthetic and the aesthetics that I surround myself with. So it's like a, uh, a little breather, I guess. Um, it's, like, it's like a colonic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I've never really thought about it like that. Yes, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> An aesthetic um, colonic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's only, it's, it's very small, there's only 14 rooms. Mm. It's home cooking style in that the owner cooks with her team each night. Oh, wow. Uh, and then everyone eats together. And, you know, it's a home away from home. And I think that's why it doesn't feel like a hotel to me. Um, and I love that that element. Um, and so you're, you're kind of encouraged to stay in the evenings rather than go elsewhere. Um, and the landscape is, is just so engaging. Um, there are these prickly pears that kind of surround the building and then bamboo that engulfs the swimming pool. So you, you feel completely isolated. And that, I think, is what I'm after when I, I need that escape. And I love that it honours its history. There are kind of reclaimed farm objects scattered about on, on the walls and sparsely um, spread about so that it's not, not too overwhelming. So I think, yeah, it's just a slow pace of life, which I am generally quite a slow person in every aspect. I walk very slow and my brain works very slowly. So I feel <laughs> like that is the direction I'm, I'm heading in. Sophie is the complete opposite. She generally walks... Um, walking down the street and she'll walk five steps uh, ahead of me. <laughs> I, I get that as well, Charlie. You're not alone on that. Keep up. Come on, come on. Yeah. <laughs> That's surprising because you're a tall guy as well, so you must have a big stride. Yeah. It's it's always a misconception. I, I hang out with a lot of other friendly giants and um, I'm, I'm six foot six and we all walk incredibly slowly. That's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you talked about a place like that being the end game, which I think is really lovely. Do you see that happening, though? You're obviously such a driven workaholic. Are you ever going to stop, do you think? Um, yes, I, I I am. And I think meeting Sophie has played 
a large role in that. I, I think before I'd met her, the answer probably would have been no. <laughs> and I think that is the end game for both of us. And it's nice to know that before we'd met, we were both thinking about the same uh, landscape and the idea of retiring to paint and play chess. Um, <laughs> so, it, yes, it, it answers your question. I am very much aiming for that as, as a life goal. Good for you. I like it. <laughs> Have you been back there since that first time? Do you go back there a lot? I'm I'm slightly concerned about shattering my yeah. dreams of how incredible it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we that. talk about it every year. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> um, but then we never commit. I, I think if I can leave a, a long enough period, um, then I, I won't have such high expectations of, of what it needs to be. That's it. There's always a danger, isn't there, in recommending a hotel or a place to stay to other people, don't you think? Because it's, it's such yeah. a singular experience that you had Ex- there. Exactly. And I completely agree with you. Yeah, so I think... We definitely will return there. Yeah. I'm just biding my time slowly. Yeah. And do you travel a lot for work? Um, yes, principally to Japan. So we um, we make a lot of our collection in Japan. I've traveled there more than I think I have anywhere else in the world. My mum and my dad basically um, built a very strong business over there. Um, and I think a lot of that is to do with Japanese sensibility foremost and I think also their understanding and appreciation of other cultures and really wanting to understand on a a very deep level Mm. and because my old man's work was so rich in uh in the cultures that they tapped into the Japanese really latched onto that so it became almost part of of his work and he started working there a lot and then so when we started our family business together we decided that we would set up a little studio out there and and, and work with Japanese craftsmen. Um, and it's been an incredible experience. Our, our head cutter, interestingly, doesn't speak a word of English. Wow. Uh, and my dad and him would kind of communicate in, I guess, through gesticulation. Really? The, this, uh, like, <laughs> their own language that they, they created and the, the pieces that they were able to make together were incredible. I love that. Well, that, that brings us very nicely onto your third and final choice, which is a place in Japan. So it's, it's the, the home studio of a ceramic artist called Takuo Nakamura and also a tea house alongside it, which I think they rebuilt in yes. some more recent years, didn't they? Tell us about that one. I'd not come across it before. Sophie and I went to Japan on our, our honeymoon. Um, she'd never been there before. And I'd only really been there for work so it was very different experience for me and we moved around japan a lot and one of the places that we stopped off of was uh kanazawa and the reason we were so um, intrigued by kanazawa is because it's so culturally rich it has an abundance of uh craftsmen artisans um and we were fortunate enough to meet one of them which is Taku Nakamura, and um, he invited us to his home and studio and um, just explained to us how he works and the environment that he's created. So he's a second-generation ceramicist and learnt from his father, and obviously I could really relate to that. And he'd created this work-live environment that was, you know, obviously my parents had their studio, but it was reminiscent, I think, of how I, I grew up. Um, but I think more than that, what I was fascinated by was 
the fact that he, his home and studio was this kind of monolithic building that was very modern and minimalist and built from just glass, timber, concrete. And then beside it was this tea house that was, you know, so gentle. And um, I love the juxtaposition and it is something that I kind of engage with on a personal level and try and encourage in terms of the way that we uh, design as, as a brand is this idea of duality. And he'd created that so wonderfully with these two worlds that coexist. And yeah, I just fell in love with it. Would that be your ideal living environment at the juxtaposition of old and new? Yeah, I think I chose this place because I think, um, you know, the brewer's house where we were living now deeply reflects the stage in my life that I'm at and also trying to work towards on a personal and professional level. And I think the combination of these two homes uh, in Kanazawa maybe reflects the next stage of my life because it's still very much like a work-live environment he's created. He has a studio at the back, but within his house, he also um, uses it as a gallery space and he and his wife live and work in that space. And I just love that idea. But then also having the tea house to retire to and have that element of separation, which is so key. So does the pared down simplicity of a tea house appeal to you? The idea of a tatami mat and a wobbly ceramic? <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. I've kind of tried to embrace Japanese culture over the lockdown and it's probably been a negation, I think, of everything that let's say Instagram stands for in terms of newness and perfection and I've I've been reading of in praise of shadows and um another book called the book of tea and they both kind of speak of similar Japanese values that I very much appreciate and can relate to and I feel like that is the direction that I'm I'm going in uh, personally and and also in terms of design uh, you know we've been looking at borrow quilting and also uh, quite often when Japanese pottery is broken they use this method called kintsugi to fix the pieces where uh, it's kind of a mix of I think lacquer resin and powdered gold and then they fix the cracks and I actually bought a kit and and have been doing that to a few things at home but I just love that idea of repairing something and maintaining memory and almost it becoming more valuable uh because it's lived yeah and I feel like a a, a tea house does a, a similar thing it's so honest they also celebrate the imperfection of things don't they uh, exactly Japan. yeah the the wabi-sabi uh yeah. effect and all those things are just what I'm I'm about I think going forward and uh having time to reflect actually over the last three months has um, allowed me to kind of draw these conclusions in the direction that I want to move forward in. And so that was why I chose this home. You mentioned In Praise of Shadows, which I've talked about on this podcast before, but it, it's, it, I just adore that book. It's absolutely yeah. brilliant. But you also mentioned the, the light and shade in, in the place in Puglia as well. Yeah, Darkness is important in interiors, don't you think? Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, the negative space is just as important as um, the positive, that should we call it, within art and also within in design. I'm, you know, there's beauty in ugliness and I think it's a similar 
philosophy. And so I've just been thinking about shadow and light within my own work and how to reflect that within within the fashion world, within design. Um, so it seems to have seeped into every aspect yeah. of, of my life. And yeah, it, it, it is interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about it until you asked me to choose three places that, that there is such a distinct connection between the farmhouse in, in Puglia and then the tea house in Canasau. Yeah. You're right in the sense in fine art, chiaroscuro yeah, has informed exactly. everything, hasn't it? Like if mm. you look at a Caravaggio or something, it's all about mm. the the way that the light is balanced against the darkness. And of course, in our homes, we have the real thing, which is natural light. We can play with mm. natural light in whichever way we want. You guys live in a, a Georgian house, and I imagine the depths of that house are probably quite dark and a place yeah. for you to reflect in and, and pause. Yeah, very much so. And you know, our living room is west-facing, and, and so Sophie used warm colours to kind of light it up, but I think also wanted to honour the depth that the shadow was creating in terms of this reflective space. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that the idea of the two um, ends of the spectrum playing off of each other and also a love of imperfection has really kind of dominated my, my thinking recently. And, you know, when I was at the court hold, I studied classicism, through through the ages and then I specifically focused on European neoclassical painting in my final year and I think the reason I did this was because I was interested in ideals of beauty mm. and I think I went into the fashion world knowing very well that at the crux of fashion was this idea that you were creating this aspiration this perfection and I feel like I've just slightly moved away from that and I'm interested more in the borrowed, in the story, in the memory. And a lot of Japanese culture, I think, utilises the same manifesto in terms of, you know, what it stands for. So I feel quite excited to move forward. I think that's a great point to finish, Charlie. Thank you so, so much. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I did as well. Nice one. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We've got lots more outstanding guests coming up, so please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and you can find out who else is coming on. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we would hugely appreciate a quick review as it helps other people to find us. You can see photographs of all of the houses we discussed today on our website, themodernhouse.com. The producer of this episode was Caroline Hughes and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective. Feast Collective.